All right. Uh, I hope you get a chance to read the book of Esther in the next day or two as Purim uh, is celebrated. Also, it's, it's appropriate uh, in Christian tradition, uh, at least in the Western church, it's appropriate to break the Lent context on Sunday because of the celebration of resurrection. It's appropriate to do that for the weekend of uh, Purim as well. So if you're doing a rather strict thing, but you're celebrating Purim, it's the time when you do the, uh, the rejoicing, then you go back, in, back into the Lent thing. Uh, that's not the sermon, that's for free. <laughs> uh, we're in a series on the Corinthian letters of Paul. He addresses them as holy ones, saints. Uh, we're called to be part of a holy community, which we call the church, and we gather in congregations in that way. In the first four chapters, he reminds them that they are unified in the wisdom of God manifest in the message of the cross and the wisdom of the Spirit. But they are acting simply like babies in Christ, showing their immaturity by dividing over personalities of their ministers. Those messengers of the gospel who are stewards will be rewarded or suffer, suffer loss based on the judgment of God. And so the leaders should fear and be faithful and the people should treat them simply as the stewards of God in that, in that manner uh, who need to be faithful to the word. The disruption of unity, Paul says, is a problem, and as a father to them, he's going to send Timothy to assist them in the things that he's taught, but he's also coming, and he says, you need to choose whether I come to you as a father in discipline or as a gentle encourager. In the second section, chapters 5 to 7, which we began last week, the apostle addresses a known serious sin that is violating their holiness. So they're dividing their unity. Now they have sin that's uh, messing up the holiness. Remember, they're a holy community. The Corinthians have allowed, because of this, he's going to focus on holiness and judgment in this section. The Corinthians have allowed a grievous sinner to remain in their unity, in their congregation. This violates their holiness before God. And Paul explains that as leaven leavens a a loaf, so this is damaging to the whole congregation. And he demands that they remove this person uh, to be judged by God. He then explains a list of major and serious sins that require a person to be removed if they continue in this behavior while claiming to follow Christ. This excommunication is redemptive towards the one being removed. It puts them outside so that God will deal with them. Uh, And it's protective of the community, but it operates as a last resort. Because of Matthew 18, we're given the explanation that we go to them privately. Then we're told to talk to them with two people who can judge. Uh, We'll see more about that today. And then only if they will not hear the church. Uh, then are they removed. So, we then move to chapter 6, which a lot of people think is a separate section. I'm going to try to explain that this is a continuation of his discussion of this disruption of holiness, and it covers the next couple of chapters. So, it's not, he's changing subjects here, which is what a lot of the commentaries say. He's actually talking about judgment within the community, and serious violations of sin 
uh, in that context that violate both our unity and our holiness. So we begin with chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Dare, does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Interesting verse. A lot of people know this verse. You're not supposed to sue your brother. Okay? Um, he's actually he uses the word neighbor here, but the context is really among them. But the idea is, he says, why are you settling disputes outside of the holy community? Because there's a boundary of the community of God. There's a boundary of holiness and righteousness that separates us from the world. The world occasionally does something righteous. We're supposed to have a pattern of righteousness. We're supposed to have a pattern of holiness. Let your light so shine, holiness, that God, that men may see your good works, righteousness, and glorify your Father in heaven. That's, that's the notion. And both are required because if we're holy but not righteous, God gets the blame. If we're righteous but not holy, we get the credit. So we need both so that people see that our way of life is in response to the grace of God in us and not because we're wonderful people. And we'll see that in Paul's writings. So he says, when you have an issue against each other, do you not fear to bring that before the unrighteous rather than the saints? Paul wants them to realize that as a holy community, the responsibility for reconciliation is within the community, not outside in the pagan, and in our case, the secular courts. So we move now to verses 2 through 6. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. This section is Paul's primary argument. They're not thinking as a community in diaspora. They're not thinking of themselves as members of the community and the kingdom of God. They're thinking of themselves as Roman citizens with rights. And when my rights are being violated, I'm going to court and get my, uh, my side taken care of, right? Uh, that's, that's not unusual even in our context uh, with our sense of right and wrong related to law here. Now, Paul makes two arguments that are a little unusual. We're going to judge the world and we're going to judge angels. And you might say, what? Okay. This is relatively unknown in the church for two reasons. Very early in church history, the church began to move away from its connection to Israel and therefore not anticipate a return of Christ and the kingdom to be established on earth. And so the belief was, Christ is now reigning in heaven and one of these days he's going to come back 
gather us, destroy the world, and we'll live in the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. So instead of having a system where this world is repaired, restored, and reestablished the way it's supposed to be to demonstrate God's righteousness, and then passing away into the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem, we just immediately go to there, and all of the purpose of our living righteous and holy lives uh, gets lost in this context. And so the only question is, is you is or is you ain't God's baby? That's all people care about. Are you saved? Are you going to heaven? There's an enormous amount that we miss. So Paul says, don't you know that we're going to judge the world? And if we judge the world, then we should be able to handle these trivial matters ourselves. So where does Paul get this? Uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, gives us a hint at this. There are many verses, I'm just going to give you two uh, at this point. He says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God. And who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received the mark on his forehead or their hand. And they came to life, this is the resurrection, and he's focusing primarily on those who were martyred for the faith and were, who kept the testimony, endured to the end, as Jesus would say in Matthew. Uh, and he said, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There is a resurrection, and at that resurrection, Jesus said to his disciples, you will sit on twelve thrones judging the tribes of Israel. And here we're told that those who have been faithful to God will reign with him. Well, what's that talking about? Well, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Paul talks about why he is suffering hardship and maintaining his faithfulness and obedience to God. It's not so he can save everybody, though he's involved in the gospel. But it's focused on the kingdom to come. He says, for this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, with an eternal glory. So clearly salvation's there, but listen to the rest. It is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Notice this endurance. If I stay on track, if I obey the Lord, if I minister, if I become uh, knowledgeable of His commandments and do them and teach others to do them, you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. If you don't do them and you teach others not to do them, you will be least in the kingdom of heaven. When that kingdom comes, what we have done as stewards in this life will determine our place in that order of reigning with Him. And that is not taught in most churches. 
Everybody thinks everybody's going to be equal in the kingdom. Everybody's going to have the same thing. The Bible has all kinds of teachings that deny that. But it's simply not taught because we only talk about salvation. So, we will judge the world. We're going to be part of the administration of the kingdom of the Messiah. The apostles will judge the twelve tribes, and those of us who have demonstrated appropriate stewardship in this life, because the law in the kingdom will be the law of the whole world. The nations will come to Jerusalem, Isaiah says, to the house of the Lord, and the Torah will go forth, from Jerusalem and the law of the Lord from Zion. That's, that's going to happen. So if you don't like the commandments of God, you're going to hate the resurrection. Because they're going to be in full force. With the temple, with the sacrifices, with everything. Finally, in fulfillment. Full operation, which is what that word means. Jesus has come to bring everything into full operation. So, He says, those of us who have demonstrated stewardship in this life will have a position in the kingdom of come. So if that's true, we ought to be able to address the problems between us. Now Paul goes further. Don't you know that we're going to judge angels? Now wait wait a minute. Clearly the angels are above us and why would the angels need judgment? What is going on? Well, I don't have time to go into the full doctrine, but let me at least give you a passage to get you started. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. This is one of the reasons people don't understand the Scriptures. They don't know the Scriptures. They know a verse here, a verse there, here a verse, there a verse... Everywhere, verse, verse, right? But they don't know the text and they don't know the context, you know? So when they're talking to me, it drives me crazy because it sounds like they're saying, I love Star Wars. I really like the relationship between Yoda and Captain Kirk. And I go, what? And it makes perfect sense to them because they and all their friends talk that kind of lunacy and think it's the Bible, right? So... Here's what uh, the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come. They're not going to be in charge of the world to come. Concerning which we are speaking. But one testified somewhere saying, I love the Hebrews writer quoting of scripture. Somewhere it says, somewhere it says something about a chicken, right? So, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? For you made him, you created him a little lower than the angels. But you've crowned him with glory and honor. And you have appointed him over the works of your hands. In the garden, man was given control over the earth and everything that goes on there in the kingdom, we will be in that full operation. Again, we just don't know the scriptures. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, this is particularly true of Jesus, who the Father is going to put everything under subjection to his feet, but he's going to need a staff 
And that's what we will be, ruling and reigning with him, if we have been found faithful in this life. If we have been found unfaithful in this life, we will be least in the kingdom. Okay? Now, again, not, not taught, not understood. So, we're going to judge the angels. Our position now is lower than them. But then we will be in a superior position. And we will participate in his total rule over creation. So Paul thinks it's absurd, if this is true, that we would not be able to make appropriate courts within the congregation. Why would we sit under judgment of those who have no place in the church or the kingdom of God to come? We just aren't preparing ourselves as disciples to live in the kingdom of God. Because we've got this on-off switch of salvation or not salvation. And the Bible doesn't talk that way. It talks about that way in very few passages. And those are the ones that get blown out of proportion. So, Paul is saying, this is a shame for you guys. There's no wise people in your congregation who have the wisdom of God and the spirit of God who can make a correct decision when you have a disagreement. Instead, the unbelievers are going to the believers are going to unbelievers to settle their disputes. Now, at this point, Paul is going to tell them that they've already lost the, the point. So back to 1 Corinthians 6, 7, and 8. He says, actually, then, it is already a defeat for you. That you have lawsuits with one another. Why are you doing things to each other that are disrupting your unity? Why are you treating each other appropriately? Why aren't you living by the biblical commandments? Why aren't you, when you accidentally do something, make restitution? And why, when you do it deliberately, don't you make it fourfold and show fruit of your repentance? Why are you not living like you're in the kingdom of God? You're living like you're in America. He doesn't say that, but that's the point, right? And when you are wronged, why do you go, all right, I want a pound of flesh. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He says, why don't you rather be wronged? Why don't you rather be defrauded? Somebody does something to you in the kingdom, God is going to require it of them. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will give an account for the things done in the body. So if somebody's done something against me, they've stolen or they've said a rumor or something like that, they're not getting by with that. Oh, but I put ashes on my head and asked God to forgive me. You didn't ask me. The Bible's very clear. You have to go to your brother and make it right with him first. Which means that sin's not forgiven. You're going to deal with that in the kingdom. Again, we don't teach this. Because we've got an ollie, ollie, oxen free kind of salvation that ignores the kingdom when we talk about it. So, Paul says, you're already in a place of defeat and loss. You're not enduring the small wrongs committed against you. you you're not allowing yourself in some sense to suffer. If we suffer with him, we will reign with him. If we turn the other cheek and go the extra mile with unbelievers, we can't do that with believers? God will ultimately judge and repay. So why can't we let some of these things go? 
Boy, we, I'm, you guys have been in church, you know. Back in 08, 1908, that person sat in my seat in the pew, and I'll never forgive them, right? The judgment's going to be hilarious when we see what, well, it's not going to be hilarious when it's me, but it'll be hilarious when it's you, you know? I'll love watching it with you, but not, not so much with me, right? So... We have to discern here the difference between minor and trivial offenses in the Bible and major sins. The problem with that is that we've been told all sins are equal. Another lie. Sins are not equal. They have different punishments. Okay? So let's assume this line of the, of the eternal lights here is the line of the glory of God. The glory of God is above here. Below the glory of God is here. Okay? Minor sins are, are right here. And major sins are down here. They have a much deeper punishment. Which ones fall short of the glory of God? All of them, but they're not equal. They all fall short of the glory of God. We've got this idea, if I think it, it's just as bad as if I did it, so we end up doing it. And we think that this sin is just stealing a candy bar is the same as murder. Are you kidding me? That's babe in Christ's nonsense. And it's preached from pulpits. That's just not true. Okay? So, what do I really think? I just told you. Alright? So, the rule is this. The little stuff, let them go. If you can't let them go, then go to a wise person among us to work through that both with you and, if necessary, with the other person. Big stuff needs to follow the Matthew 18 process. You go to the person privately. I don't want to go to them. Then then bear it. I went to them. They wouldn't respond. Now I, I asked them for two people. That they trust to make judgment to wise people in the congregation. I tell my side. They, you tell your side. They make a ruling. That person still won't deal with it. So now it comes to the church. The church will make a ruling. If they won't follow the church's ruling. Then we remove them. See how it's a last resort? That's the issue. That's how it's done. A lot of people want to step bypass step one and step two. And go right to step three and call the elders and tell them to get involved. And if you've done that, you notice we simply don't respond. We say, did you go to them? No. Done. Did you go to them? Yes. Did you then talk to them about wise people that can settle it? No. Done. Right? That's the biblical process. Okay? So, uh, Paul then is going to use his list again. Remember the list last week of those major mortal, felony, whatever term you want to call sins that are the problem. So he's going to do that again now in verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, almost the identical list, a little more sexuality here, I'll tell you why in a minute, will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Paul says, don't think that you can sing Amazing Grace and live these lifestyles. You can't do it. Then he says, some were such were some of you. You were living in this lifestyle. But you came to the Lord. And you were washed, cleansed by the Lord. You were sanctified. You were made holy. I am holy, you be holy. You were made righteous to be righteous. You're made holy to live holy. You're made righteous to live righteous. You're made clean to live clean. It's not wash, 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 die back in the muck. Which is what some people have done in turning grace into license. I can do whatever I want because the blood of Jesus will cleanse me. Not true. Intentional sin has no sacrifice, the book of Hebrews says. So, Paul reminds us that we're called to a holy community. We're going to inherit the kingdom and those grossly unrighteous will not. He lists them as a parallel to the list that he had done when he talked about somebody being removed. But he says, some of you were these, but you are that no more. You are clean, you you are holy, you are righteous in the name of the Lord and by His Spirit. Now at this point, Paul's going to give an example of why we should continue as holy and righteous uh, unified people uh, in the Lord. And that verse that begins is an awkward verse, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by any of it. Now, this verse has been and can be understood in several ways. I'm going to give you three of them. First one, Paul is saying, It is true that all things are lawful, but not useful. All things are lawful, but I will not be controlled by them. This is the grace people who think that Jesus got rid of the law. Second one. Some say all things are lawful, but I say they're not profitable. Others say all things are lawful, but I say I'm not going to be controlled by those. And then the third one is, some say all things are lawful but not useful, and others are saying all things are lawful, but I will not be controlled by them. I really believe that the one that Paul is using is, you say all things are lawful, but I say they're not all profitable. There are things that you are biblically allowed to do, but they're not profitable as you're moving towards the kingdom. All things are lawful, you can do, But you should not even be controlled by things that are lawful. So I think that that's his point. And now he's going to give us the explanation. That explanation is because it's unlikely that Paul, who's a Pharisee, and argues about what is unlawful and lawful, for him to say everything is lawful. He'd be talking out of both sides of his mouth. Because he says, you can't do this, it's against the, the commandments. That means it's not lawful. Okay? So watch out for people who pull these verses out of context. So, 1 Corinthians 6.13. One of my favorite passages. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. 
But God will do away with both of them. The body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. So here's my example. Okay, what's the purpose of food? The purpose of food is to be eaten. You can shellac it and make it art, but that's not what it's for. Okay? What's the stomach for? The stomach is to digest food. You can take it out, sew it up, and make a purse out of it, but that's not what it's for. So what is the body for? It's for the Lord. So that He can place His Spirit in our bodies with us. And therefore, ultimately, what God's going to do is resurrect this body and make it worthy of His presence. But He will dwell in us now as we are struggling towards obedience. We are not to grieve the Spirit of God that dwells in us. So, having made the theological point, Paul goes on and says this. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but He will raise us up through His power. Your body's included in salvation. It's not get rid of the body and go to heaven and float around and play a harp. That's not biblical. The people who have died are in a position of being naked, Paul says. They don't want to be naked. They're waiting, longing for the resurrection. They're not up there partying and dancing on streets of gold. None of that's in the Bible. The streets of gold is after this creation. Okay? So, they are waiting for the resurrection. They will rise first. Then we will be changed and be caught, caught up in the air with them. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now this is important. Jesus talks, Paul talks, about the abuse of discernment when we take the communion. And he says you have to discern the body. We are very good at discerning the body on the cross. This is my body which is broken for you. But we are not very good at the body that is us. We are the body of Christ. We are His hands. We are His feet. We are His mouth. We are presently the incarnation of the Lord as much as this world can have. And we are to function as a body. And His body is sick. And God says, if you defile the body, if you don't discern that, He will judge you in this life and in the next life. So our bodies are for the Lord. They're for resurrection. And to join our body, now look at verse 15. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He's talking about a temple prostitute. May it never be. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to that prostitute is one body with her? For the scripture says the two become one flesh. So the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now catch his, his argument. Here's Paul's argument. When you steal, you make Christ steal. When you hurt your brother, you make Christ hurt your brother. When you sleep with a prostitute, you make Christ sleep with the God of that prostitute. His argument is, you are the body of Christ. What are you doing? That's his point. So now in verse 18, he's going to close this thing out. And I'm actually going to get done early. How do you like that? 
flee fornication. Now, why does Paul put fornication at the beginning of his two lists that he just did? Because the Corinthian church has this guy who's fornicating. If they'd had a guy who was blowing up in wrath and reviling, he would have used that as the primary one. Okay? These are violations of our holiness and our unity that aren't to happen in churches. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the fornicator sins against his own body. Why? Because the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Do you not know that you, your body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So Paul says, do your best to avoid sexual sin and these other sins. Do not make them a habit in your life. Make them absent in your life. But he also says that all sins use the body, but sexual sins violate the intent of the body. God made our bodies male and female. He made them male and female for the purpose of reproduction and the channel of that reproduction is marriage. The Bible says that God is seeking godly offspring. And therefore, there's no other reason for us to be male and female but to reproduce. Marriage and reproduction is the imago Dei that begins at the beginning of creation. And all of this, it's my body, I can do what I want with it, it's my sexuality, all of that, I have needs. All of that is the world and not the kingdom. And we have bought into the world and not the kingdom. So, he says, we are his temple. We are purchased to be his and for his glory. And that doesn't start at the resurrection, it starts now. That's why we buffet the body, that's why we hold the old man back, that's why we struggle towards holiness and righteousness as we learn the importance of those things so that we will be prepared in the kingdom to administrate these things appropriately with the mortals who will live at that time under the law of God and the angels who will be under our dispatch in addressing things in the world of God. A doctrine that we simply don't know about. Let's pray.